I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today we interview Arena board member and co-founder Michael Simon who's a pioneer in the field of data and analytics. He was the head of data analytics for the Obama 2008 campaign and went on to found Haystack DNA, which is a uh, leader in the field of data and analytics and has done work all around the world. He's the founder and CEO of Elucid, which is a company that works with police departments all around the country to collect better data on how constituents are relating with the police and view the police. But today, uh, Michael traces the origins of data and analytics in in modern campaigns and traces it all the way to the uh, current day controversies around Cambridge Analytica, which uh, at the time of this recording is dominating the news due to a a series of scandals. Uh, At the end of the podcast, we also take advantage of Mike's knowledge on travel. So um, you obviously don't have to stick around for that if you're only here for the politics, but Mike uh, bestows some of his expert advice on what credit cards to use, what um, travel point systems to use, which airlines to use, et cetera. And I give him a hard time about uh, some of his recommendations. So let's jump right in. Michael Simon, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. So you, you're a co-founder of the organization and a board member. And, you know, we're waiting for the right time to bring you on here. And, and it seems like with everything going on with Cambridge Analytica, it's a great time to, to use your expertise. But before we even get into that, uh, you were the uh, director of analytics uh, in Obama 08. That's how we met. Tell us a little bit about you, you, how you came to have that role. Was there, were they even planning to have a director of analytics at the beginning of that campaign? Yeah, um, good question. So, <laughs> first of all, credit to uh, a guy named Ken Strasma, uh, who was, you know, uh, sort of a or was and is a legendary player in sort of the development of analytics as a as a practice in democratic politics. He had done it for Al Gore. Uh, he had done it for John Kerry and then uh, was sort of a huge get for the Obama campaign very early on, was one of the first um, consultants hired and someone that I knew. Um, I had desperately wanted to work for Barack Obama. Everyone I knew had gone to work um, and every professional connection I knew had gone to work for Hillary Clinton. And so I um, basically convinced Ken to let me tag along with him through a slew of battleground or, or primary states, starting with you know going to Iowa about a month before the Iowa caucus and sitting next to him. Um, that sort of, you know, one thing led to another. And by the time that, you know, I had been in a, you know, half dozen, uh, primary or caucus states, um, got to know, you know, folks in the campaign leadership. And, you know, I remember writing, writing a memo in early 2008 to, um, Steve Hildebrand and, and David Pluff. Steve Hildebrand was the deputy campaign manager and David Pluff was the campaign manager, um, saying, Hey, Hey guys, we should start a campaign analytics department. Like this should be a thing and not just sort of, um, you know, an external consultant, but this needs to be something that becomes part of the lifeblood of this campaign and how we make every decision. And we should hire a bunch of people and Hey, I'm the guy to lead it. Uh, and somehow persuaded them that, uh, that was rational and, um, they, they took the bait and here we are. What is analytics? So when, when people talk about field and people talk about, um, polling, Um, where does analytics uh, fit in and is there a tension between traditional polling and analytics? 
I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that pollsters definitely feel threatened, but um, by, by it because it's sort of like other people with numbers. Um, although that, I think, the distinction between the two is definitely fading a little bit. The I, I think it's helpful to think about it. Ima- imagine that you, Ravi, are a first-time candidate for public office, and so you enter. You know, whether it's you're running for president of the United States across all fifty states, or whether you're running, you know, for city council, you're faced with uh, basically a blank slate um, and a and a and a uh, you know you have no idea who's with you, who's against you who's most persuadable, who's going to vote, who's not going to vote. And, and um, political analytics basically try to answer those questions using data, technology, and statistics. So the whole goal is to basically be able to take, um, in this case, a set of government data, a voter file, which is produced by um, typically by uh, the, the, at the state level, so by a state you know, registrar of elections, whatever that's called in a particular state, uh, secretary of state, uh, you know, head of elections, whatever it is. Um, it's the list of registered voters and it has information like your name, your date of birth, your address where you're registered to vote, and also your election history, not who you voted for, but what elections you voted in. So that's the basic set of data that every campaign, uh, effectively every campaign in America has access to. Um, what campaigns try to do is to layer on top of that more data that helps them make better predictions about how to behave. So again, using the example of um, you running as a first-time candidate, you don't have a big bank of, I mean, you may assume that you know de- Democrats will mostly be for you, Republicans will mostly be against you, but many states don't have partisan registra- registration. So campaigns will then go out and try to essentially predict how every single registered voter might act. Um, if the election were held today and, and act, I not only mean, would they vote for you? Would they vote against you? But also would they vote? Which is a key, which is a key question was a big question for the Obama campaign. So we went out and we tried to basically, uh, predict, uh, and come up with a score on a, on a, on a one to 100 scale for every single voter, every single registered voter in America, how likely were they to vote for Barack Obama and how likely were they to vote period? And then a couple other things as well, like, you know, was healthcare their primary motivating factor? Was education their primary motivating factor? Whatever the case may be. But those two core models, the support score, how likely are you to support Obama, and the turnout score, how likely are you to vote, were sort of the operating system around which the entire campaign, Obama campaign, revolved, and around which most modern campaigns revolve. Because you use it to prioritize your resources, to buy digital ads, to send direct mail, to send fuel organizers, to decide where to locate offices, to buy TV ads. Um, This is sort of like the basic currency around which campaign strategies are built in 2018, but of course in 2008, it was all totally new. And so what kind of data do you have access to back then that you were able to layer on and which of that data was particularly helpful or unhelpful? So it all started, as I mentioned, with, with, with government data, right? So these voter files that every campaign is able to get access to, um, that's not new, that's not novel, and every, every campaign did it. Um, what we did back then in, in 2008, that again, and this is sort of, you know, totally standard today, is we struck a sort of novel licensing deals with, um, uh, you know, essentially data vendors, data vendors that sell data to, uh, you know, uh, uh, credit score companies that sell data to, 
um, you know, direct mail companies are trying, you, know, you, 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 you open up your mailbox and you're like, why did I get this, you know, uh, a coupon for pet food? You know, the companies that supply that kind of data. And we basically went to them and said, Hey, listen, um, we want to license your data. And they said, okay, well, do you want to buy the list of, you know, people who have pets or do you want to buy the list of people who, uh, you know, uh, are looking for health insurance or whatever? We said, no, 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 we want to buy everything. And they were like, oh, okay. He said, no, we want to license every single row and every single column of your database because what we want to do is we want to append that commercial data um, to this builder database and then use it to make better predictions beyond just using the traditional sort of race, age, gender, where you live kind of stuff, which, which had been sort of stock in trade, um, getting you know more rich consumer data around what kind of publications you subscribe to, whether or not you have a pet, whether or not there's children in the house, all that kind of stuff, um, just allowed for, again, if you, the, the way I like to think about it is, um, imagine the entire electorate as like a deck of 52 playing cards in the middle of a, in the middle of a table, in the middle of like a rectangular table. You're trying to stretch the cards out so that, um, you get as, as many cards to the, in the left and as many cards in the right as possible. So you know where people stand and the more data you have on people, the more stretch you're able to get, the, the further those cards move apart from the center of the table being stacked on top of one another, not knowing whether or not people you know are for you or against you to being really far on the polls. And again, just more data helps you do that. That's the, that's just how statistical modeling works. So if Obama 08 was a pioneering campaign at the national level in analytics, where did this start? Uh, which campaign nationally uh, was able to, was, was the first that you've heard of to use these techniques? The first I heard of was Bloomberg, but, it, but it, there, was there somebody who was doing this before that? Don Carey did this uh, at, at some level in 2004, and it was not widely reported. Again, Ken Strasma, who was the um, uh, you know, micro-targeting consultant uh, to the Obama campaign in 2008, um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he had worked for John Kerry and, you know, famously did this with the Iowa caucus electorate. You know, John Kerry, as you may recall, had a sort of come from behind, nobody saw it coming win, um, which Ken is, you know, largely, largely, uh, credited for, um, you know, in, in doing the sort of data analytics work that uncovered who the sort of hidden Kerry electorate was and allowed that campaign to target their resources effectively. Um, you know, the Bush campaign, of course, did this, um, you know, they had their, uh, it was a little more, a little more flashy, but you know, this is sort of what Carl Rove was famous for doing in, in, in 2004. Ken was then hired by the Bloomberg campaign when he ran for mayor to do this in New York city, um, which is sort of what you're referring to. And then, you know, really when it, I think when it really hit its stride, you know, was, was the Obama campaign in 2008, as you mentioned, but now, you know, if you're running for, you know, dog catcher on up, um, at least some version of this stuff. It may not be custom, it may not be custom to you, but at least some version of this sort of predictive modeling is available to, you know, almost every candidate running for almost any office on any side of the aisle. And so, you know, taking us past the 2012 election, which we, uh, we don't have enough time to really go through what the, the advances there were. When you read the, the after analysis of the Hillary campaign, uh, there did seem to be some tension between uh, MOOC, who seemed to be a proponent of analytics, and some of the traditional pollsters. Uh, what what was that tension, and did it have any consequences on the eventual result? 
polling and and this sort of you know I think I think if you use the term analytics in this case to refer which which is a really broad term but in this case let's use it to refer to specifically what I'm discussing which is individual level predictive modeling about how individual voters will behave that's the tension between um, uh, polling and, 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 and analytics is both of them are you know people essentially whispering in the ear of the campaign manager the candidate telling them what's you know, how the voters are, are, are thinking or what they're behaving. But they, in fact, are, are for really different purposes. Polling had been used in the past to do things like, you know, target direct mail or um, target, uh, 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 you know, television ads or target, um, you know, where offices might go or that kind of stuff, which it was a really clumsy tool for doing because if you anyone listening to this has ever consumed polling, it will tell you stuff like, you know, in Michigan, you know, we're up by five points and 37% of people, you know, think healthcare is most important. And 34% of people think education is most important. That's not, that's not, that, that's like helpful if you're trying to decide what to talk about in a speech, but it's not very helpful in trying to decide like what neighborhood should I go walk in today or what door or what doors should I send volunteers to go bang on or who should I send direct mail to? So, you know, polling the way I, the way I always talk about it is, you know, polling is, um, it's an essential tool to helping um, discover what messages are effective um, to uh, evaluate a horse race. You know, are you up? Are you down? Are you trending up? Are you trending down? It's a really, really poor tool for evaluating resources on, you know, the micro level and whether the micro level means, you know, door by door, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, or even frankly, you know, in some cases, media market by media market. Um, and so they're, they're kind of like, I think that, you know, there have been some turf wars between, you know, pollsters, your traditional pollsters and, and sort of the, the, the new wave of, of practitioners of, of, uh, of analytics and campaigns. But it's a little bit um, it, it's a little bit uh, it's, it's much more ego driven than reality driven, let's say, because they really are sort of different animals and both really good for specific purposes. Yeah. And I think I don't know if you've ever read or heard of this book, Everybody Lies, uh, by uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, but basically it's a book where this uh, this guy took all he got access to Google's uh, search history and uh, also like data like Pornhub and all sorts of stuff where he was able to his basic point is what people say and what people do are two different things and I think we obviously saw a little bit of that effect in some of the polling in 2016 and it's always the nightmare scenario for Democrats it certainly was the nightmare scenario in a way when we were worried about having it, the first uh, black president on the ticket uh, for potential future black president on the ticket that people would say one thing and get the polls and do something else. Um, and so I think that's, as we get new tools, trying to narrow the gap between taking people at their word versus uh, actually analyzing their behavior uh, seems to be uh, the new terrain here. That's real. And I think, um, you know, there's also a couple sort of, you know, age old, uh, phenomena at play here. One of them is people are much, much, uh, more likely to state their intent to do things that are socially desirable. Right. So this is always, if, if you look at what, what, what has gone wrong in polling in recent, first of all, a lot has gone wrong in polling in recent years. And we could do a whole separate podcast about that. Um, part of it is that no one answers the phone anymore. Part of it is that people uh, don't represent the truth, but there's, there's, 
again, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but fundamentally, people are, uh, it, it, is a, it is a verifiable sociological phenomenon that, that has existed long before predictive analytics and when politics existed, that when you ask people questions, they will generally report themselves as much more likely to hold a socially desirable view than they actually do or actually will do in practice. So if you ask people something like, as you intimated about, you know, sort of the Obama campaign and our fears in 2008, would you vote for this black guy named Barack Obama? We were worried that people were saying yes more often than was true simply because they wanted to say yes. Um, and so we had to ask people roundabout questions like, do you think your neighbors would be likely to vote for an African-American candidate for president to try to get at sort of the delta at the delta between what people would say and the truth. And you saw this in the Trump election where, you know, people were much um, less likely to say that they would vote for Donald Trump um, than they actually were because Trump was up there on stage saying some pretty racist stuff and people didn't want to admit to it. Um, and then the other area where this really comes into play, and this is where, this is, this is what screws up every pollster, every modeler, you know, every prognosticator is when you ask people, how likely are you to vote this Tuesday? Virtually everyone says very likely. <laughs> so you, you, you have to, you know, the turnout, everyone always talks about the turnout model, the turnout model, the turnout model. Um, it's really complicated because you have to look at two sources of data. You have to look at one source of data that's that's observable behavior. So what have people done in the past? So if this person has voted in four of the four last elections and they tell me they're going to vote in the next one, they're probably definitely going to vote. If they voted in one of the four last elections and they tell me they're definitely going to vote, how seriously do I take them? What if they've never voted? What if they're a new registrant? They've never voted before. We have no behavior. And they tell me I'm definitely going to vote or I'm probably going to vote. How heavily do I weight their response? And, and the answer to that question is behind a lot of the failures of modern polling. They just get the turnout model wrong. And you're starting to see this um, you know, in, in a lot of these special elections that have happened recently, including as recently um, as last week uh, in, in Pennsylvania, understanding the enthusiasm gap and how likely people are to how likely people's responses to that are you going to vote question match up with reality is fundamental to understanding what's happening in all these special elections and what's going to happen next uh, sorry this year uh, in the in the uh, this fall in the in the in the midterm elections um, if if you you know if you move the dial a couple percentage points in either direction it it flips you know in many cases dozens of races from the R to the D column. If Democrats are actually as enthusiastic as they are saying, and actually going to turn out at the level they are saying, this is going to be a historic wave. And so pollsters and analytics professionals are really trying to figure this out. Yeah. And so let's, we've talked about the progression from Kerry all the way to Clinton, but there was another campaign employing some of these tactics in 2016, and that was the Trump campaign. And the Cambridge Analytica group has been all over the news. Before we talk about what they've been accused of, let's just talk about who they are and what we know about what their role in the Trump campaign was. Their role, and I can actually talk a little about sort of their claimed role versus you know what they actually did. Um, you know, Cambridge Analytica, uh, you know, is a a, a a U.S. offshoot of a British uh, company 
um, that, you know, got into the game of sort of political analytics as a, you know, as a vendor to campaigns, a consultant to campaigns. It's, it's a, a category in which there are a number of actors, uh, prominent and not prominent on, on both sides of the aisle here in the U S I used to run one of them, uh, called Haystack DNA. Um, you know, the, their, their unique spin on the, on the, the question was, um, you know, we're not doing, you know, I, I referred earlier in that conversation to sort of this, this, um, predicting how voters might, you know, support or not support you or be willing to vote or not to vote that sort of traditional voter modeling. They said, well, you know, that, that voter modeling, you know, uh, you know, is sort of neither here nor there. We're doing this personality modeling. So we're going to be able to predict how every single voter in America, you know, forget how they might vote for a moment. We can, we can sort of talk about their, their fears and we can talk about their personality types and what, what kind of messaging might, might be able to sort of exploit, um, you know, their, their personality to get them to do something. Um, so it was a little more, you know, the, the cast, to what they claim to be able to do was, uh, let's say, a little more uh, cynical uh, or a little more sinister. Um, you know, I also think, you know, frankly, they're you know totally full of shit. <laughs> and uh, the the you know there, there's there's a reason why there aren't more Cambridge Analytica's out there and why you know sort of reputable campaigns didn't use them. And it's not just because they were you know seeking to you know buy prostitutes or you know uh, uh, you know. Uh, blackmail candidates, as we have learned in the, in the past couple of days, it's because what they did is basically uh, snake oil. Uh, you know, they sold um, this psychographic modeling as the key to unlocking the electorate, and they couldn't really get anyone to hire them. But what what they had in their back pocket that was very valuable to the growth of their business was backing from Rebecca Mercer uh, and and, and the, you know the, the the Mercer family, the hedge fund billionaires, that basically said to Republican candidates, "If you want our money, you also have to use our vendor." And so there were other campaigns, Ted Cruz among them, that had um, uh, that had Cambridge Analytica foisted on them. Um, the Trump campaign had Cambridge Analytica foisted on them as well. Um, Twitter is full, and I've got some you know acquaintances who are Republican operatives who you know had firsthand experience in working with Cambridge Analytica that you know my my have informed my opinion of their you know being snake oil salesmen. Um, the Trump campaign, you know, ultimately, um, you know, you you the, the digital operation headed by Brad Parscale, who is now the campaign manager for the 2020 reelect. You know, Brad was sort of a you know obscure, uh, uh, you know, digital strategist, um, you know, who sort of rose to prominence because no one else would take the job. Uh, he took the Cambridge Analytica data and used it to target Facebook ads. And, uh, you know, I think there's, we could probably talk a little bit about how effective that was or how effective, you know, that, that may or may not have been, but that was basically how it was used. In the closing weeks and months of the campaign, they effectively stopped using Cambridge Analytica's data. Um, they weren't seeing much return from it. I had a conversation with a senior Trump campaign official about a month before election day, and you know, he told me that basically, um, you know, they could, everyone sort of rolled their eyes internally about it. This is kind of a victory has a thousand fathers situation where you know you win and everything you did was genius, and you lose and everything you did you know, was was complete stupidity. In reality, Hillary's data analytics operation was. Um, orders of magnitude more sophisticated and better resourced than Trump's and more effective, um, they just lost. So that's why we're, we're not hearing that story.
let's go through some of the scandals now that are uh, alleged uh, for and with some pretty strong evidence. Uh, probably, and I'll give them an order of, of the strength of the evidence. Um, I think there are three waves of questions. Uh, one is around uh, a data breach or some kind of theft of data um, or violation of user privacy in Facebook as, as the first, um, I think, wave of news over the past week. Uh, and Facebook stock is down something like 10 points or something, uh, 10% since that news came. So there's obviously uh, a lot of heat on Facebook right now. Yeah, they've they've lost almost forty billion dollars in value, and so that's number one. Uh, number two is this documentary that just came out last night with footage uh, you've alleged uh, that you've alluded to, where the leadership of Cambridge Analytica is caught um, disclosing some extremely questionable tactics, even beyond uh, what they do with data. Uh, so that's the second piece. And the third, which hopefully we'll get time to get to, is there have been there's been a lot of smoke around Cambridge Analytica and innuendo around what their relationship with uh, Russia could have been or anything like that. And I have not seen any hard evidence on that. So I would like to at least touch on that before uh, we move off of the subject of Cambridge Analytica. So let's start with the Facebook issue. What what's going on here? What do we know, uh, and what could we learn over the next couple of weeks? You know, Facebook here ha- has um, has a problem, <laughs> and I think you know, for a company whose whose motto is move fast and break things, they have moved glacially slow and have allowed things to break around them uh, in response to you know criticisms around how they their their role in this election. I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg after the election kind of like shrugged and was like, "Who us?" Facebook, we couldn't have had. Come on, we couldn't have had a, 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 any uh, any impact on the way people think about things. And then they go around, you know, uh, 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 or then they go around the corner and say to brands and advertisers, "Hey, we're the number one way to persuade people to buy your stuff." So, uh, you know, it, it it's a it's a little disingenuous. Um, and they and and I'm like I'm fairly shocked given that you know it's a pretty politically savvy operation. You know, Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook. Um, obviously, was a was a senior uh, Clinton uh, 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 administration official, and comes from sort of Washington, and just th- they've been so clumsy. It, it just sort of seems shocking to me. Um, I think you know, again, the 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 um, billions of dollars in market value that's been lost just in the last twenty four hours or so. Um, I think probably will shake things up over there and get them to finally pay this the attention it deserves. Um, the reality is that you know. F- Prior to a uh, policy change in 2015, uh, Facebook's API, uh, which is the way that um, developers and applications interacted with Facebook uh, programmatically, so the way that they sort of sent data back and forth, allowed um, apps to harvest the kind of information that Cambridge Analytica did. So, um, you know, there's a technicality as to why what they did. Um, was against Facebook's policy. It certainly was also unethical, which we can talk about in a moment. But Facebook's API allowed outside vendors, whether you were um, Cambridge Analytica or their academic partner, uh, whether you were Obama for America, whether you were Tinder, whether you were Farmville, and those are all real examples, to harvest uh, a Facebook user who authorized the app and installed the app, um, data from one's own Facebook page, including name, email address, phone number if you had it up there, likes, 
and then as well as your uh, your social graph. So anyone you're connected to. I mean, I've got like a, a thousand friends on Facebook. So um, if I authorize the app, uh, any one of those apps, all those thousand friends information or any information they shared with me at least would have been uh, hoovered up by whatever the application was. What so so that that that's that's on Facebook. And so to pause there for a second, that was. Prior to 2015, that was the transparent policy of Facebook. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I might sort of asterisk transparent, but um, yeah, that was the that was the policy of Facebook. People were um, allowed to do that, and in fact, um, I, I on my uh, on my uh, if you look at my Twitter uh, account uh, at MB Simon, I, I posted a screenshot of what the Obama campaign's um, permissions. Uh, request looked like, you know, if you've ever done one of these things, you authenticate with Facebook, authenticate with Twitter, it'll say, Hey, this application wants access to X, Y, and Z. So users gave that access. I think that what's, what, what to be really clear about how Cambridge Analytica operated and why, um, in addition to the fact that they work for Trump, which, you know, people are either happy or unhappy about the reason why people are so furious about their, their, uh, usage of Facebook in this instance is they hid the ball. So they had a, uh, academic partner, um, uh, you know, a sort of like, you know, va- vaguely named like, you know, research science Institute or whatever the heck they were called, um, that set up a, uh, one of these polls that used to be, you know, ubiquitous on Facebook that was like, Hey, let us, let us tell you about your personality type. If you take, take, you know, take this little, this little questionnaire. Uh, but it really was essentially malware. They paid users, um, using Amazon's mechanical Turk. Um, they paid users a, between a dollar to $2 to download, uh, or to, to rather to authenticate this app to their Facebook page. So what that means is that, you know, you would have gotten, you know, a dollar or $2 sent to you via PayPal um, if you authenticated this app and took their quiz and they you know, might've cared about your responses to the quiz questions of which there were, by the way, a little over a quarter million of them. But what they really cared about was access to the Facebook graph of the quarter million or so users who downloaded or who authenticated that, that app, um, because it got this, um, sort of like quasi academic front group access to the entire Facebook social graph of every user who installed it. So the, 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 you know, quarter million or so folks, they paid a dollar or $2 to, but also to everyone they were connected to that data got, that data got, um, uh, you know, uh, exported, um, and then it got bundled and then it got sold to Cambridge Analytica who used it to build the products that they ended up selling to the Trump campaign and to other campaigns. And nowhere in that application um, or in the, whether, whether it was to the users who sort of had, you know, quote unquote, in consent, who said, yeah, I'm going to take this dollar or $2, install this app. Yes, I'm giving these, granting these permissions, um, whether to them or certainly not to the people who were their friends who never clicked anything. Um, no one knew this information was going to Cambridge Analytica and no one knew this information was going to the Trump campaign. And so what do you think happens next here? So there's talk of hearings on the Hill. It seems like both political parties have an ax to grind with Facebook. Um, what do you, what do you predict over the course of next week? Do you think we could have Zuckerberg in front of a congressional hearing? Maybe. I mean, I, I think, you know, there, there's a combination here of, um, uh, a very salacious news story. Um, obviously adding prostitutes and, 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 uh, and bribery into the mix makes it, makes it, makes it, makes it, makes it even more salacious, but a very salacious news story. You've got technophobia, 
You've got policymakers who don't really understand technology. And then you've got Facebook's reaction, which has been ham-handed at every single turn. It just made things worse and worse and worse. So I think the combination of those things, yeah, is likely to lead to, you know, how many more times can the tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, who are sort of the folks that are really in the spotlight here, although basically everyone is in the same position, how many more times can they send their general counsel to Capitol Hill? Or are we going to start having to see Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg? And 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 I, I think you know the chain. Something has happened in the last twenty four hours, or, or thirty six hours, or forty eight hours, where um, the tone has changed. Facebook stock price again. They're they're taking a, a, a hit in the uh, in the you know tens of billions of dollars. So um, I, I think we're going to start seeing a, a very very. Uh, much more serious reaction. Let's now talk about the second category of potential issues here, which is this this documentary style piece that came out of the UK where uh, a crew, and credit to them for some amazing journalism here, uh, posed as a potential customer of Cambridge Analytica. And I think it was as a Sri Lankan um, somebody connected to a Sri Lankan billionaire. Um, and they essentially got the senior leadership of Cambridge Analytica to admit to a series of practices. Uh, what did we learn in that documentary and, and what potentially, uh, could be some of the consequences for Cambridge Analytica? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, up until that documentary, Cambridge Analytica, at least as far as U.S. law goes, didn't really do anything that was illegal. Um, and and without, besides the technicality of um, this academic partner, you know, reselling the data effectively to, to Cambridge Analytica, they didn't even do anything that was against Facebook's terms of service. So, you know, Facebook changed their policy in 2015. This is no longer possible. Um, so, so while they may have done things that were morally objectionable, um, you know, hard to hold them accountable, you know, <laughs> that said, anyone who knows these folks, and again, I've had the chance to talk to a lot of sort of Republican acquaintances and sort of the, the Republican data analytics sphere who, who um, you know, have been rolling the, the, their eyes or calling Cambridge Analytica snake oil salesman for, you know, many years now. Um, everyone had suspicion that these folks were, you know, not only sort of ham-handed hucksters, but also, um, you know, fraudsters as well. And I think this the the uh, I was I was saying to a to a friend this sort of looks like a, a John Le Carre novel you know as as acted out by the Three Stooges um, they they are they are um, uh, I, I watched that video and it, it, it was it was I mean it, I laughed I laughed out loud I mean it's absurd um, but I think it, what is yes for people who haven't seen it yet, what is on the video? So, so what's on the video is they are meeting with they, uh, Channel Four in, in in the UK had um, had a journalist posed as you said as a, as a Sri Lankan businessman um, working for uh, a, someone running for office in, in Sri Lanka, and they were soliciting Cambridge Analytica's or interviewing them sort of uh, for, you know, to consider hiring them for their services. And they, they pressed them in a number of questions about how they might help with the campaign and kind of like out of the blue, they offered up, um, you know, in addition to uh, data analytics and all the other stuff that they, you know, sort of part of what they sell, they also, um, you know, not only intimated, but, but pretty directly offered up 
uh, you know, hey, what if we, um, you know, we could also, you know, send some uh, Ukrainian women and, and, and fly some people in and go try to tempt the candidate and then develop some blackmail material. We could try. And it was, it, it, it was yeah. like... <laughs> the, best, the best part of this whole thing was that the CEO interjected multiple times to be like, just so we're clear, we've done this before. A case study in what not to say when someone is wearing a wire. Uh, it was really, it was really remarkable. And, uh, and I think you're, and by the way, that's an important point that it was the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. This was not some like, you know, they, 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 they have, um, Watching Cambridge Analytica's uh, Twitter feed grow and its level of alarm and panic over the last uh, forty-eight hours has been hilarious as well because you know I think they're horrible people, uh, but you know their claim has been well this was you know something that happened a long time ago well this was low-level you know consultants of the company or people who you know like that's not what that's not who we are that's not what we do. And then the CEO of the company is on camera talking about hiring Ukrainian prostitutes so they can blackmail a candidate. So I think the, uh, the, uh, while the jury may have been out for some on uh, Cambridge Analytica's, uh, the ethics of their business practices, I think that, that is uh, largely put to bed in the last 12 hours here. And the final sort of category of potential scandals, the one with, at least from what I could tell, not much evidence is, You've probably been hearing a lot of innuendo over the past few months, and maybe even going back a year, about Cambridge Analytica potentially being in the middle of this Russia stuff. Is there any evidence for that? It, it, it looks to me to be more smoke than fire. I mean, I guess we'll we'll find out, and, and nothing would really surprise me. My my attitude on on the Russia stuff um, has been pretty conservative, as in like there's a lot of innuendo and a lot of accusations out there. Let's see the hard proof. Um, the professor who ran this, um, sort of academic quasi, and I, I sort of put air quotes around academic because they basically were, you know, not following academic, uh, ethics principles, but this Oxford academic, uh, who, um, who, uh, uh, ran the, the, the Facebook, poll that harvested all this data for, for Cambridge Analytica and then sold it to them um, is Russian and had done work uh, in Russia. Uh, Cambridge Analytica had um, solicited uh, Luke Oil, uh, the Russian oil company, which has very, very close ties to Putin. And the CEO has very, very, very close ties to Putin as anyone in the upper echelons of sort of the Russian uh, socioeconomic sphere does. Um, and they had had extensive meetings back and forth. Uh, you know, to me at the moment, it looks like a lot of smoke. There might be fire. Um, hard to really say definitively at this moment. But, you know, given the way that things have unfolded and how typically as this, as this, the story of Russian involvement in our election over the course of the last, uh, you know, year or so has unfolded where there has been smoke, there has generally been fire. Um, you know, the other thing that deserves mention is, of course, um, the intersection between, and again, there's no, um, there's no, uh, you know, clear evidence here, at least not yet, but there, there clearly, um, Russia was involved in, uh, using social media to, uh, either fan the flames of, or, or even directly plant and then fan the flames of stories, news stories, or or quasi news or fake news stories on social media that had an impact on the election, uh, on the 2016 election. And I think one of the big questions here is how did, how did these um, Russian governmental uh, agents, 
which were using Facebook and Twitter largely um, to sort of spread their falsehoods, target their messages. There's a lot of ways they could have done it. They could have just gone and said, you know, because you could go right now to Facebook and say, all right, I want to, I want to run an ad. I want to run an ad in Michigan. I want to run an ad in, you know, these 50 zip codes that I think are important. And I want to um, target people who like Donald Trump on Facebook or who like the NRA, the NRA on Facebook or whatever it is. Like that doesn't require Cambridge Analytica to do that. Anyone could do that. And Russia, um, you know, is alleged to have done that. Um, and, you know, until Congress takes action requiring, um, digital ads to disclose the same kind of stuff that radio and TV ads disclose the like, Hey, I'm Ravi Gupta and I approve this message. Um, folks could conceivably keep doing that hiding sort of in the darkness, but, um, how do they, how do they target? Did, did they use the Cambridge Analytica data to target, you know, there's, there's no, um, clear evidence of that yet, but again, Cambridge Analytica did play at minimum play footsie uh, with Russia and key Russia, you know, commercial state actors. Um, you know, I'm sure we're going to find out a lot more in the coming weeks and months. And so this is an evolving story. And so we'll keep checking in with you. And for at this point, anybody who's not interested in travel tips and airline points, uh, they can jump off. But I, I feel like since I've got you, might as well ask you, you're a bit of a guru on points. Uh, for folks who are super, I've always wanted to to get you on recording for this. For folks who are super novice um, and really need to get their stuff together on airline points, hotels, traveling better, what are some of your key points of just here's how to clean yourself up pretty quickly and get in the right direction for 2018? So, so I think the most, by the way, thank you so much for asking. I love talking about this topic much more than Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> Um, the, the key principle here is every time that you make a financial transaction, so every time you swipe your, your credit card, um, the vet, the, the merchant, so you, you're at, you're at a, you're at a, um, let's, let's say you're at a boutique fitness gym, like Tonehouse. you swipe your credit card, you pay them 50 bucks for a class. Tonehouse pays the credit card processing uh, institution um, and, and that, that, that number gets split up in a bunch to a bunch of different sort of sub vendors, a little under 2% of that transaction to process it. So you are paying a merchant and the merchant pays, you know, visa as well as all the other vendors. What you as a consumer should be seeking is to get as much, if not more of that roughly 2% of that transaction back in your pocket, because it's basically your money. You paid it. How do you get it back? So that's sort of the, the underlying principle here. The single best way to do it is to um, think about how you spend your money, what you spend your money on, and and how to maximize, how to develop a credit card strategy that uh, allows you to do what you want to do. And if you're someone who likes to travel uh, and likes to travel for free, I think that at the moment, the, the best credit card on the market is the Chase Sapphire Reserve. And I'll tell you why. Um, the chase, you, you earn if you spend a uh, dollar on a Chase card on this Chase Sapphire Reserve, uh, one of their proprietary points called these Chase Ultimate Rewards points. Uh, and these Chase points are worth a little over two, cent, two cents each. Uh, my, my good friend, the points guy, Brian Kelly, values them at 2.1 cents each. So you're already ahead of the game. But if you spend money on uh, restaurants or dining or coffee shops or fast food or anything that sort of could loosely fall in the category of dining or travel, which includes Uber, buses, trains, planes, hotels, parking, taxis, you name it, the subway. Um, 
all those things get three points sent back to you for every dollar you spend, which is effectively 6.3% cash back effectively in your pocket that you can use for travel. And these points are you know, transferable to a whole bunch of different programs. Uh, you can, you're not locked into any one airline. You're not locked into any one hotel. Um, it's, it's the best card out there. Now, it, there is an annual fee of $450 a year, which sounds really, really expensive. But you have to remember that you get 300 of those dollars back credited to you every year um, for spending on travel. So if you go spend a hundred bucks on, on a, uh, on a, uh, you know, a, a Amtrak ticket, you get the hundred dollars directly back in your pocket. So it's net $150 a year to you. Um, if you are, you know, if you're spending, you know, I'd say over, let's say a thousand dollars a month on dining and travel, um, it would be silly not to have a Chase Sapphire reserve in your pocket. It's hands down the best card out there. So we're hearing a lot about this Uber card. Tell us why the Sapphire Reserve is actually a better deal. So the Uber card gives you um, gives you points back, uh, cash back for, for Uber exclusively for Uber, uh, and uh, it is I can't remember I can't remember the exact specifications of the card, but uh, it's a pretty good deal on dining. I want to say it's is it is it five five Uber points back per. Uh, per dollar spent on dining, something super high. Yeah, something super high. It's really, it's really unusual. Um, and then it's you know your standard, you know, one, two, or three points on sort of other categories. The thing is, an Uber point is only worth one cent. So, so even if you're getting five x back, you're getting essentially, let's call it five cents back um, on dining. Whereas in the Chase Sapphire Reserve, again, you're getting six point three cents back. Furthermore, you can only use that. Um, those Uber points on Uber, uh, which I guess is, you know, if you take a lot of Uber could be valuable, but um, again, the chase points um, can be used across um, uh, depending on how you want to use them. Technically any airline or any, uh, any hotel program. Um, and then of course, much better value on certain airlines, specifically United and their partners and, uh, and, and Hyatt and their partners, um, for even higher value, but you're getting basically a minimum, uh, of, uh, of 2.1 cents in value from each of those, uh, chase points. So if you put a hundred dollar meal on a Uber card, you get 500 Uber points worth, uh, you know, basically five bucks. If you put a hundred dollar meal on a chase Sapphire reserve, you would get, uh, you would get 300 chase Sapphire points, which would be worth, uh, you know, 2.1 cents each. So, you know, you do the math, you're better off putting, you're better off putting that meal, even though the chase, even though the Uber offer appeals, appears uh, better on the surface, you'd be better off putting that same meal on the Chase, Chase Sapphire Reserve. So final topic here, you know, I, about a year and a half ago, you persuaded me to use not only the same airline, but to consider going American or Delta. Um, this is a sore subject between the two of us. Uh, I was previously Southwest and I think I'll acknowledge the good advice, which is use the same airline like as much as you possibly can and build up rewards within them for obvious reasons. But let me make my case for Southwest and then you tell me why Delta slash American is the better way to go here. Uh, so, and you've heard this shit before Southwest, no change fees, you know, and depending on who you are, like sometimes you change your uh, schedule a lot. And I've, I've got status now on American and pay a ton of change fees uh, because they're pretty, they're sticklers. Even if you're, if you've got some status, uh, so that's huge. $8 flat fee internet, 
which is unbelievable. And the internet generally works, it seems, a lot better than GoGo does. Um, and then uh, the boarding process, which I know probably drives you crazy. I, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. <laughs> well, for some people, I, I, I like it. Uh, it, it actually, it's, I think it's probably proven to be a faster way to board an airplane. But, you know, I, as, as I finished Southwest, I was, I was A, which is great. You just get right to the front of the line. But even if you're B or C, you just, you're, you're waiting around much less. Uh, obviously, you can't predict exactly what seat you get. But even be, above and beyond all that, I never fly first class. Southwest has no business or first class. It's an egalitarian airline. So I guess the question to you, Mike, is you're a Democrat. Why are you using um, airlines that basically have recreated the political philosophy of the Republican Party? Well, I mean, I'm obviously a limousine liberal. Um, and uh, no, I, 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 listen, if, if you are, there's a, there's a different airline for everybody. And I think, you know, by and large, if you don't travel very much, you should just buy a ticket that gets you on the nonstop route that is the least expensive to get from where you're going, from, from where you are to where you're going. Asterisk, don't fly on Spirit Airlines or any, or any of like these like low-cost carriers that make you pay $50 to put a bag in the overhead bin. But you know, within reason, if Delta gets you there, if Southwest gets you there, if you're not flying a lot every year, then loyalty doesn't make a lot of sense. Just buy the seat of the on the on the plane that you want to be on. Um, if you're flying a lot, however, I think that loyalty really comes into play. And again, it, 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 there are you got to look at your at your habits and your preferences. If you're someone who's constantly changing your schedule, you've got a choice to make. Do you uh, you know do what Robbie does and fly with you know you have to put up with flight attendants who wear shorts and you know the oftentimes sitting between. Uh, you know, uh, two uh, screaming babies in a middle seat. But if you want to fly Southwest because it allows you flexibility in changing your schedule and you're someone who's constantly changing your schedule, do it. Or wait until you know your schedule for sure and then book. Um, there's a really different calculus if you're someone who's a frequent traveler. So if you're the kind of person who, um, you know, is traveling, you know, I'd say, let's say, you know, more than 25,000 miles a year, which is the equivalent of five round trip flights from New York to California, or, you know, a bunch of international flights. I think you'd be stupid not to pick an airline and to pick one of the, the big three airlines, Delta, United, or American uh, to be loyal to. And the reason is you're going to earn um, status on that airline that will get you, you know, yeah, it'll get you, might get you an occasional first class upgrade. But when it really becomes valuable is when shit goes wrong. So if you've ever been stuck somewhere because there's a, there's a nor'easter like is going to you know, hit the East Coast, it looks like, you know, this week, um, or there was a mechanical problem with the flight and you have, you have status, you will immediately be taken care of. And if you don't, you won't. You won't. Just like the, what the Republican Party wants our country to be like. That's exactly right. Exactly right. That, 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 that's their vision for Obamacare. Yeah. And, you know, people not wearing shorts, by the way, I, I, and, you know, uh, I, I see. I see your vision, Mike. So on, on that, um, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we've learned a lot, and um, we'll 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 keep checking in with you as uh, the story evolves. Um, not the story of our travel, but the story of Cambridge Analytica and uh, what we learned about the Trump 2016 campaign. So thank you. I look forward to it.